Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a Congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. Today, we pick up with the 17th Perek of Malachim Bet, which describes major historic events, catastrophic, catastrophic developments, but it does so from a dispassionate 30,000-foot vantage point, and it also couples with that an analysis and an explanation from a theological standpoint. So it's, it's a unique Perek, it's a very consequential Perek, and it's a Perek that has uh, a character very much of its own, standing apart from much of what we've seen so far. And the parak opens in a, in a usual fashion. We learn that there is a new king in the northern kingdom, Hoshea ben Elah. Now, this is not the son of Pekach ben Ramalia. Consistent with the political disarray of the north, Hoshea becomes king by killing Pekach. And then the, the text tells us that he is, right, often we're, what we expect next is the text to uh, give us some sort of uh, summary of uh, a, a grade, right? Is this a king who follows in the ways of David? Is this a king who is like Yerevim? Is this a king who is even worse than Yerevim? So we get a grade and he gets uh, maybe not an F, he gets a D. We're told that he is better than some of his, better than his predecessors. Okay, so it's not, not he hasn't failed, but a, a, a D. Now, what's interesting here, uh, as I've already foreshadowed, is that he is going to oversee the nation, the northern kingdom, at a time where catastrophe strikes. This parak is, it really sounds the death knell for the northern kingdom. And we would usually uh, expect, right, following the logic of Sefer Malachim and, and indeed all of Tanakh, that a, a worse king would, would result in a worse outcome and a better king a better outcome. So how is it that this king, how Hoshea, is, is better than his predecessors and yet he oversees this moment of, of, of great tragedy? And the Gemara in Sanhedrin is responding precisely to that kind of gap in our expectations and, and the reality as it is being presented to us. And he explains that Hoshea, he was better than his predecessors. In what way? He removed the roadblocks and the guards that prevented people from making a pilgrimage to Yerushalayim, to, from being Ola Laregel. And that was already put in place in the times of Yerava many, many years prior. So that's, that's good. That would seem to open up uh, a lane for... Uh, for a reprochement, for, for the people to, to again, go back to uh, appropriate ways of serving uh, the Ribbono Shalom. This, this is a good thing. Ironically, though, it ends up being worse for the nation because nobody goes. Nobody takes advantage of this opportunity. Uh, the, the people are too far gone from years of, of leaders that are bent on, on distorting uh, uh, the 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 relationship with the Rebbeinu Shalom and uh, and failing to honor uh, the, uh, the the covenant with the Rebbeinu Shalom, right? The people are so far gone that nobody now takes this, sees this, nobody even sees this as an opportunity, and nobody goes to Yerushalayim. This kind of lays bare how bad the people of the north are at this point, and and that's why it opens them up for the punishment that follows. So there's this kind of interesting surprising relationship between the relative piety or decency, let's say, of Hosea and the fact that the people are punished so heavily in this parak. So Ashur, let's, let's just discuss now how this unfolds. So here, here's how the parak unfolds. Ashur has seized control of the northern kingdom, which is this kind of vassal state uh, to, to Ashur, to Assyria. And, uh, and we're told that the new king of Ashur, who is Shalmaneser, sees that Hosea is not really faithfully serving as a vassal state. Um, he's not paying tribute. And not only that, but he's, he's engaged in talks trying to ally himself with another major, with, with really the other major regional power, which is Egypt. And as such, Shalmaneser sends Hosea to prison and he besieges the northern capital. He besieges Shomron. And, and after three years of, of the siege, he conquers the city and then sends the northern kingdom into exile to other places 
in the Assyrian Empire. You could ask, why is it that Hosea disrupts the status quo? Why doesn't he just continue to pay tribute uh, to Assyria? So Rabbi Alex Israel uh, notes that, that it was specifically because uh, we have this new king of Ashur, right? Shalmaneser is, uh, has taken over for Tiglat-Pileser. Tiglat-Pileser was this uh, very uh, powerful and fearsome uh, king. When Shalmaneser takes control, so we know historically it took some time for him to actually kind of really take the reins. He, had, uh, he, he was met with resistance, and perhaps Hosea saw an opening there, right? He saw an opening, and uh, he thought that, that Assyria was, was weakening, and so he stopped paying tribute, and he started looking for you know, alternative, maybe more favorable political alliances. But as we, uh, as we learn, he ultimately really miscalculated. Uh, and Shalmaneser uh, proves to be uh, you know, every bit the uh, political and military uh, force, um, and, uh, and he punishes Hosea for his disloyalty. And then, as I said, ultimately the whole north ends up in exile as well. I think it's interesting that there's this two-step process. It's, 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 quite, it's, it's very telling and important. Right? First, Hosea is taken out of the picture, so the nation doesn't have this wicked king to blame. Right? This is, I think this uh, dovetails beautifully with the, with the earlier point. Right? That it's not that the king is so wicked and that's why the nation is getting punished. Rather, the, the nation is being punished on its own, on its own demerits. Right? First, and so this, this follows, right? that Hosea would first be taken away and put, in, uh, put into prison. And then for three years, Shomron, the capital of the northern kingdom, is besieged. And, and presumably, right, what has happened at other points in Tanakh and will happen at other points in Tanakh, when there's a siege from, from an enemy, uh, you would expect that the people would call out to Hashem. This is an opportunity, right? Minameitzar karasi ka, that you call out to Hashem in these moments of, of pain and suffering and, and, and fear, but not so, right? Even absent uh, a scapegoat of, uh, of, a, of a wicked king, of a bad king, the nation uh, does not uh, do the right thing. And it lays bare the fact that the nation is, is, is kind of corrupted, unfortunately, really to the core and, and deserving of the punishment that was forthcoming. Um, it's really impossible to overstate you know, it, it, it almost, it happens so quickly that the Pesukim don't dramatize this. But as I said, it's this dispassionate, like 30,000 foot view. But this is, it, you can't overstate how tragic and consequential this moment is, right? The, the, clearly, the, the Northern Kingdom had been careening towards this cliff for a long time. They've been off the, off the path for a long time. But now they've really, they've really taken, uh, you know, they've plunged off the cliff, right? This, this is it. And to a large extent, uh, the, the, the northern ten tribes are, again, not entirely, and there's, this is obviously a much broader discussion, but to a large extent, the northern kingdom and the ten tribes are really lost to history. A major swath of, of our people are lost, and that is what is retold in this parak. And it's precisely uh, because it's so significant, the implications of what we've just uh, discussed and described and what, what is recorded in this parak are so significant that the text gives us a protracted explanation, a theological explanation. And, and they explain, the parak explains, essentially, that, that all the things which Moshe warned against in Devarim, um, the, right, the, the consequences of failing to honor the covenant with, with God, have now materialized. And it goes through in, in lengthy detail the different ways that the nation have violated uh, all of the, the commandments, uh, that uh, that were put forth in the Torah, and uh, and the result is that the land has has spit them out. Indeed, that is ultimately what ends up happening. The parak then concludes with a fascinating development. 
we tend to think about the exile of the Israelites or the Jewish people from, from our perspective alone, uh, which is understandable, but, um, but this was part of a, this was a, a kind of a broader political uh, agenda, p- part of a broader political regime by the Assyrian uh, the empire who used moving large populations, right, population transfers from one area to another in order to manage a, a massive empire. People are much less likely and much less capable of mounting a rebellion if they're not in their homeland, they're not connected to their to their ideological home, and they also, they don't know the terrain, right? You take a group of people and you move them, you make them new, you know, immigrants, so to speak, in a, uh, in, in a, in a new civilization, a new culture, a new environment, so that they're, they're going to spend all their time just trying to get on their feet. They're going to have much less uh, wherewithal to actually re- rebel and revolt. Um, so, so the Assyrians were moving around large populations, and that's, that's part of why that is, that is why the northern kingdom was exiled. But in its place, right, a transfer, you move from one to another, and someone else moves into the Shomron. And indeed, there's this new population of people from elsewhere in the Assyrian Empire who are now moved into the northern kingdom, into Shomron, and so enters uh, a group of foreigners um, you know, that are living now in Shomron who will come to be known as the Shomronim, the Samaritans. Right? And fascinatingly, right, the, the way this develops, so these people are, find themselves subject to attacks by wild animals, by lions. Lions were very prevalent uh, in ancient Israel. And they interpret this within their own theological framework to mean that they're being punished by the local deity of Shomron, just as uh, in, their old, in their own hometowns where they come from. So every, every city um, or, or uh, region has, a, has its own kind of deity that is particularly governing, right? This is in the pagan uh, worldview, right? That it governs the particular town or city or place. So too, there's, there's a, a deity who governs and, and rules in, in Shomron and in, and in Kena'an. And, and they, they figured this, this deity must have its own laws and principles and rules, and we have to follow them. And, and, and we're, we're lost because we don't know what the practices of the place are. And so they seek out basically the, uh, a, a priest from the Northern Kingdom, right? The Northern Kingdom had their own kind of priestly class. Um, and uh, and this, this person comes back, this priest, this Kohen comes back and teaches the Shomronim uh, all of the practices of the Northern Kingdom, which, as we know, were these syncretistic practices. It wasn't worshiping uh, God in the way that the Torah demands, but using, you know, it was, it was using, you know, Bamot and using idolatry and, and, and all sorts of, you know, iconography and all, all the things that, uh, that the Northern Kingdom was, was, was uh, guilty of. But fundamentally, it was the worship of, at least to some extent, it was a worship of God with a capital G. And so the, the Shomronim adopt uh, a kind of a syncretistic practice of worshiping, of, uh, of worshiping God. And we find that for, uh, apparently for kind of nine non-Israelites, that was kind of acceptable enough. And so they, they are no longer uh, punished in the way that they were being punished with these wild animals. And that's, that's also so interesting, right? Because it indicates to us that God couldn't countenance kind of outright pagan practice in Israel because, you know, we know the land of, of Israel is, uh, is a, um, a place of, of elevated spiritual sensitivity, but so long as the Shomronim display some level of respect to God, even though they're doing it in, in, in appropriate ways, right, with Bamot, with this, with that, nonetheless, it was still acceptable, to, to, uh, acceptable enough that they wouldn't have to be subject to this, you know, punishment of wild animals. And history will, will prove that these Shomronim 
they're here to stay. And, and for, for centuries to come, uh, their status is, is going to be a matter of dispute, right? Because as, as their, their status and their own religious observance is going to kind of oscillate between being uh, full, almost like full-fledged members of the Jewish people, uh, being distinct members of, of, uh, of, of the region, uh, and sometimes even uh, being all-out kind of foes of the Jewish people. Right? Their, their, their status, the Shomronim, is going to be one of, um, of contention and, uh, and, and something that's a bit fluid over time. You know, how do we think about them? Do they worship God? Are they Jews? Are they, is it something else? Um, so that's an interesting development. And so in this chapter, uh, we see not only the, you know, the, the tragic departure of a major segment of, of our people, of the Jewish people, but also the arrival of a new group filling that void and presenting both you know, largely new challenges, but also some opportunities as well, uh, which is going to be a, a lasting reality for the Jewish people for, uh, for the duration, really, of, uh, of Jewish history. That's it for today. Chazak ve'ematz and happy learning.